0: Today on Musically Speaking, I'll be chatting with conductor Tomas Golka, where he'll fill us in about the upcoming program for the Riverside Phil, the importance of building eclectic skills as a musician, and what we've learned by going through a pandemic. But first, we've got Ransom Wilson. Maestro Wilson is music director and conductor of the Redlands Symphony and flute professor at the Yale University School of Music. His expansive and marvelously successful career includes leading opera performances at the New York City Opera, as well as being an assistant conductor of the Metropolitan Opera for over 10 years. He has been a guest conductor of the London, Houston, KBS, Krakow, Denver, New Jersey, Hartford and Berkeley symphonies, the Orchestra of St. Luke's, the Philadelphia Chamber Orchestra, the Halle Orchestra, and the Chamber Orchestras of St. Paul and Los Angeles. He has also appeared with the Glimmerglass Opera, Minnesota Opera, and the Opera of La Quincina Musicale in Spain. Wilson is a graduate of the Juilliard School and was an antique foundation scholar in Paris, where he studied privately with Jean-Pierre Rompol. His conducting teachers included Roger Nierenberg, James Dixon, Otto Werner Mueller, and Leonard Bernstein. As an educator, he regularly holds master classes at the Paris Conservatory, the Juilliard School, the Moscow Conservatory, and Cambridge University. He has recorded over 35 albums as flutist and or conductor, which includes three Grammy Award nominations. Maestro Wilson, thank you so much for joining me. It's terrifyingly exciting to meet you.
1: (laughs) That all sounds so impressive. I was listening to it with great interest.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've got to start by humanizing you a little bit. You were born in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Oh, yeah. Did you leave as soon as you could?
1: Kind of, yeah. Lily Tomlin said it best. She she said uh, they asked her where she was from. She said Detroit. They said when did you leave? She said when I found out where I was. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, this, you know, it. My hometown has a lot, a lot going for it. But uh, uh, classical music at that time was not one of them. So I really had to leave. I went mm-hmm. to the uh, North Carolina School of the Arts for high school, and that was very. Um, very tied to new york city all the professors were f- from new york so it was just it was an easy transition to go to juilliard after that i mean of course you have to get in and a lot of people want to get in but yeah four, gotcha. four years at juilliard
0: yeah um do you still hold anything dear from the south
1: oh the food oh yeah i love grits that's not some something you hear out here very often. Although I did find a place in Palm Springs that makes its own grits. I mean, they make their. In, in other words, they use the the old like forty five minute technique. And I don't know why they're here, but I love them.
0: <laughs> you know, you're southern when you know of the forty five minute technique. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> You are a multifaceted musician, a master at your instrument, the flute, and thoughtful conductor of opera, the symphony, chamber music. I couldn't help but notice in my digging that you are very connected and seemingly inspired by singers, not just with your experience at the Met and other notable opera houses, but you've mentioned direct influences by sopranos Rose Bampton and Montserrat Caballé. Do you sing much, and is this concept of emulating and connecting with voice something you teach?
1: I can't sing. <laughs> I mean, I, I think if I would be trained, I probably could, but I've just always been too busy to do that. Um, when you're around a great singer, there's nothing like it. I mean, it's, you're feeling humanity at, at, at its rawest in a certain way. And so I'm constantly talking to my students at Yale about singing, but, of course, if we actually sing, that wouldn't sound good. So it's got uh, to be a sense of singing through the instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, and whenever they don't know what I'm talking about, I, I go to the computer and, and let them hear a great singer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everybody sings a little bit. So if one of my students, uh, flute students, doesn't know how to uh, phrase something, all I have to do is say, okay, sing the phrase. You know, in your in your terrible voice, and then you'll know. And it's it's true. It's like we have this innate sense through through singing of exactly what music is. Mm. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. So I, I always I always come back to it. Mm.
0: Upon transitioning from flute to conducting, and maybe transitioning is the wrong word, as you clearly still do both. Maybe opening up to conducting and trying to pull what's innately in your being, in your breath. Uh, in your mind and applying it to another instrument that happens to be a group of 75 people. Um, is there anything in your process to help you connect with the music through baton and a group as you do with a flute?
1: That's a very good question, and it's it's kind of the central question. For, uh, so when string players decide that they're going to conduct, they're they're already used to engaging their arms. And pianists, the same thing. The, the, somehow their arms and shoulder are involved in the actual making of the sound. Mm-hmm. That's not true for wind players. So I had to learn how to, to get expression from my breath into my arms. And it wasn't easy. It, mm-hmm. it took quite a long time. For a long time I would conduct and I would find myself blowing air like that just to, to remain connected. But they are exactly the same thing. And so, if I want, if I want to find out, say, in a Brahms symphony, where is where is the phrase going? What what uh, colorific details what does it require for for full meaning? I get my instrument out and play it hmm. um, because it's. I know that so well that nothing else will inform me as well.
0: On any part, you just play through it.
1: I'll play through all the parts if necessary. Yeah.
0: Wow. I'd like to reintroduce our guest. I'm speaking today with Ransom Wilson, world renowned flutist, professor at Yale University, total legend, and happens to conduct one of our hometown orchestras, the Redland Symphony. We're going to talk about the Redland Symphony in just a second, but I'd like to chat briefly about your approach to programming. I've had the honor to sub with the Redland Symphony a few times, and for one of these concerts, we did Ravel's Piano Concerto and Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue with the pianist Francois Dumont. And you also programmed William Grant Still's Darker America. What struck me then was when you pointed out that it wasn't Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, which introduced jazz to the symphony. It was this piece, Still's work, that was the revolutionary keystone. Do you feel a responsibility as a conductor who curates sound and important ideas when programming performances for the public?
1: it's a very difficult uh, skill actually and takes years to understand how pieces go together and why they might sound good together what i generally do is I, i'll have a central idea let's say if i have a soloist that wants to play the ravel piano concerto then i start looking at what all the connections ravel had at that time what what other composer and you very quickly come to gershwin in that in that case and rhapsody in blue is famously supposed to be the very first piece that was ever jazz work that was ever played in a concert hall Mm -hmm. and in the course of reading about that suddenly i realized there was this other piece this this william grant still piece that was actually about six months before that Mm -hmm. but completely forgotten about because he wasn't white Mm -hmm. and um and this that situation that situation has grown uh to 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 overcome all of our lives now, and so now we have kind of a mandate to try to make our our programming as diverse as possible. but I'm happy to say that I was there ahead of the mandate because I thought it was important that the orchestra reflect the audience that it's playing for which which is very diverse, particularly mm-hmm. in this part of the country. It's extremely diverse um so i'm uh, that's basically how I approach a program and it's been working. Our our audiences are up by thirty oh, percent, wow. which is which is a big deal. Um, it wasn't that I, I said I'm I'm going to make this audience bigger. You know, it's just <laughs> that I thought this is my own personal taste. I like to see, I love great masterpieces. I love Brahms symphonies, for example. I don't like to hear Brahms symphony with a Schumann overture, and a Beethoven piano concerto. For me, it's too much. It's just too heavy. It's like going to it's going it's like going to a meal and, and, and being presented with uh, three different kinds of meat. It's <laughs> just you homogenous. Know? Yeah, and, and I just don't find that there's very much interest in that. What, I, what I'd what i like to know is, okay, if, if we're going to do this Beethoven piano concerto, how did that piece uh, fit in historically and cur- culturally in its time? What inspired it? Um, and by asking those questions, I come up with other works that—, that that work with it, mm-hmm. and um, um, I'm not saying I'm a genius about this. This is just my own taste, and um, I feel like I'm in sync with the times, because it we are beginning to realize that all the people that live here are important.
0: Mm-hmm. I'd say you're ahead of the times in that regard.
1: <laughs> I hope you're right.
0: <laughs> Let's dive into what's coming up. Can you tell us a little bit about the December program you've got ready for Redlands Symphony?
1: We've been doing unusual things at Christmas time, and this year we have a big band swing uh, Christmas. Oh, how concert. fun! I'm really happy about it, uh, and we managed to get this jazz singer uh, from New York, who's sung with uh, uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center and um, headlined at the Apollo Theater, uh, named Alexis Morast, and she's incredible. Uh, and I also involved two other people that are that are. Uh, that are local. Marshall Hawkins, who's in his 90s now but still going strong, uh, and he played with Dizzy Gillespie's band, I think. He played with a whole bunch of uh, of great band leaders in his in his time. But he's been uh, in Idlewild for about 50 years now. Oh wow! So uh, he's local and he's beloved and and for good reason. And uh, Gregory Robbins, who uh, who has a great deal of experience leading leading uh, big bands. But I'm really happy about the program because it's all of the favorite, you know, Jingle Bells and uh, White Christmas and chestnuts roasting on an open fire and all this stuff, but in arrangements that are from the 40s. Cool. Yeah, it's a great program, I think.
0: Oh, that'll be so fun. I'm speaking today with Ransom Wilson, flutist, educator, and conductor of the Redlands Symphony. We don't have time to completely unpack the pandemic. (laughs) but we weren't performing, we weren't traveling. Are there some things you can share with us that were helpful, or that you'd like to keep doing, that came out of the pandemic.
1: I have a, a very enlightened board of directors, and they immediately put some funds behind uh, having an, a real online presence. Mm-hmm. So um, we not only filmed some some smaller concerts of our of our players, some chamber music concerts. We also got permission from the musicians' union, which you have to have, to go ahead and broadcast some of our concerts. With commentary and a little bit of video commentary by me, and all of that actually increased our audience even more. So uh, it was a it was a great thing, and of course we're going to keep doing it because we're reaching people. When we saw where people were from, they were in Florida and places like that. I don't know how they found us, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's been working out very well. I I um, I think the main thing that came out of the pandemic for me is that I I will never again take. The privilege of a live audience for granted, mm. because you know it, w- without th- there's this weird connection that happens between the composer and the performer and the audience it's It's kind of magical, and if even one element is missing, you don't get that magic you don't get that feeling of of kind of transcendence like we're we're actually not in the concert hall anymore, and um, having the audience not there. It just makes our lives empty. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think all of us feel the same, but that's a privilege that we will never again, <laughs> never again take for granted.
0: Absolutely. We are in the thick of the holiday season. Is there music you gravitate towards during this time? Uh, no judgment if you're a Messiah sing-along guy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> although okay. although it's a great it's a great marketing tool and it does really bring people together. It's good but, fun. But uh, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not one of those. <laughs> um, you know, I, I happen to have Sirius XM in my car, and normally I listen to the big band channel, uh, the '40s channel, and all of a sudden it all it all changed over to holiday music, <laughs> but still in that style. And maybe that's what made me think of doing a, a big band Christmas. I don't know. Because I, it happens every year. I always forget. Um, so I've been hearing really, really uh, snappy arrangements of jingle bells you know, on my way in here. You know. so,
0: <laughs> That'll get you in the spirit. <laughs> yeah.
1: I listen to that. I listen to 60s and 50s music, too. And that's really, that's really my thing. Yeah. Uh, I listen to contemporary jazz. Uh, of course, I listen to classical but I really, I really am nostalgic, even for the 40s, which is before I was born. Yeah. I have this weird nostalgia for it. Um, and, I, and I gravitate back towards that. Uh, and living now in Palm Springs, that feels very appropriate.
0: Yeah, it's very retro.
1: hmm
0: <laughs> I love it. Um, not to out you, but you recently turned 70. Are there areas of your artistic process that are changing as you get older?
1: Well, I told one of my students the other day, I feel like I've seen everything that's going to happen. So now I'm in the um, assessment stage. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't have any conclusions yet, but maybe I will. But yeah, I feel like I've seen a lot. I mean, probably the the last surprising thing was the pandemic. I I don't think there's anything more surprising than that that's going to come along, so... Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I feel like I have nothing left to prove. So I'm just kind of cruising along uh, really enjoying life.
0: Um, Well, then my follow up question will be, when are you going to write a memoir?
1: It's interesting you should say that because it it comes up a lot. And a couple of times during the pandemic, I said, I think I'm going to do that. But I'm thinking of doing it kind of in a different way so that each chapter deals with a particular aspect or a particular person that came along and and not just kind of like a through narrative, because mm-hmm. I think that would be boring. Mm-hmm. But I read a Langston Hughes uh, book that was very much like that. I can't remember the, the title of it right now, I'm gonna, but I just finished it. It was when he was telling his travels and he went all the way from, I forget where he started, but he ended up in Haiti for a while in Cuba and he was in Russia with a movie, a movie troupe. Wow, I troupe didn't know that. A, I knew none of this. He spent a long time. He was called over with about 20 black actors from New York mm-hmm. to make a movie about the black experience in America for the Soviets. Wow. And they knew nothing when they got there. They didn't, they didn't have a director. Nobody in the film had had any experience at all. And uh, they, had no direct, they had no director mm-hmm. uh, and no, no idea. So they stayed there for probably two months, just being put up in a luxury hotel, and nobody knew anything. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, m- many of them went home, but he decided to stay in and go to Turkmenistan and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a fascinating book, uh, something about my travels. Anyway, it, it should be easy to find for anybody who's interested. But, but it, and it was set up very much in the same way. as like, this is the chapter about Turkmenistan. Um, you know, this is the chapter about what happened in the hotel. And, and uh, th- it that inspired me. It was the structure, his structure inspired me. So maybe it'll come along soon. I'm pretty busy still. so
0: <laughs> You are. But as a programming master, I can understand you kind of obsessing over the form of this. I don't know, there's something primal about storytelling. And I can't help but think that Like you said, if you are thinking about various chapters, I have a buddy who has written a book, and she started with um, her house and um, areas of the house in each room, and it, it actually started with the front door. And having that physical space to kind of think through and walk through for her, and I can't help, maybe with your travels or something, you could, like, compartmentalize that and then elaborate on those stories.
1: Well, it's interesting because that sounds very much like the memory palace. Yes, and uh, yeah, I I I did some some uh, practice of a memory palace. It's extremely effective. Yeah, and uh, I found it really pretty easy, actually.
0: Of uh, associating things to remember with a place.
1: Yeah. So you you you, you let's say you're trying to memorize a, a list of animals, mm-hmm. and you you attach to to the front door the name of five animals, and so every time you think of the front door, those five five animals uh, pop up. And then there's five more animals on the table right inside the door, and then there's five more on the staircase going up. And it's amazing that every time you think about that that staircase, those names pop up. Yeah. Um, and apparently that's how the Greek orators used to memorize their speeches.
0: Oh, for goodness sake.
1: So seems to have been working for quite a while. <laughs>
0: yeah. um, I've been speaking today with Ransom Wilson, flutist, educator, and conductor of the Redland Symphony. Ransom, are you open to a couple of rapid fire questions?
1: I guess. (laughs) Okay, and
0: just a word (laughs) or two. Obviously, you are a lifelong learner. Can I ask what you are learning now, whether that's a score, a foreign language, maybe some new kind of technology? What are you learning these days?
1: I am learning uh, to orchestrate orchestra scores. Mm I'm always learning languages, always. I'm getting my Spanish better now. I'm in the right part of the country for that. Absolutely. Um, I wish I spoke German better, so maybe that'll be, that'll be coming up.
0: Cool. Uh, who inspires you, musician or non?
1: Um, I'm very inspired by Yo-Yo Ma. We know each other, but not very well. But just the way he continues to reinvent himself really inspires me. Mm-hmm.
0: He's no stranger to the IE either. Um, who do you listen to when you're driving? You kind of mentioned FX radio.
1: I, well, I do. I listen to a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of swing, uh, big band stuff. Again, I wasn't even born when that stuff was written, but <laughs> it fascinates me. Yeah. Um, or I'll listen to, um, you know, a great pianist. I rarely listen to flute players. I, I'm too critical. I can't really hear it. Mm. So uh, it has to be another instrument.
0: Gotcha. For our friends who don't necessarily listen to a whole lot of classical music, but are interested in getting into it, where would be a good place to start?
1: I think the the best place to start is with Tchaikovsky. Mm. Because Tchaikovsky was the, the master of, of very simple ideas. Not that he was simplistic as a composer at all. He was a master of big structures. That are very very easy to understand, and of course the music is very touching and very exciting. So I think for me that would be the best place to start.
0: What is your favorite thing to cook?
1: I like to cook uh, exotic food from everywhere, and I recently discovered Peruvian food. So I, I, I'm really into that right now. I made a a couple of times. I've made a Peruvian arroz con pollo that is so good that it's indescribable. I mean, everyone that tastes it. Just can't believe how good it is. So
0: that sounds delicious. <laughs> um, this may be a stretch, but do you have a favorite rock band or hip hop group?
1: I'm afraid I don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay.
0: Do you have a favorite big band group?
1: It's hard to beat Benny Goodman, but I'm very fond also of Tommy Dorsey. Hmm. When I hear, but especially when he plays the trombone, that is the most heavenly sound. And I'm very inspired by listening to, to listening to him play.
0: Maestro Wilson, it has been an immense honor chatting with you today. Thank you for being here.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you.
0: The Redlands Symphony Holiday Concert, titled A Big Band Christmas Jam, will take place December 11th at 8 p.m. Tickets start at $18 and may be purchased at redlandsymphony.com. We'll include links when we post this program to our website on kvcrnews.org forward slash musically speaking. You're listening to Musically Speaking on 919 KVCR. I'm Margaret Worsley. We'll be right back. Welcome to Musically Speaking on 91.9 KVCR. My name is Margaret Worsley and I'm Associate Professor of Music at San Bernardino Valley College, talking today with Tomás Golka, Conductor and Composer and Music Director of the Riverside Philharmonic, as well as Artistic Director of Village Concerts in Riverside. Since winning first prize at the 2003 Eduardo Mata International Conducting Competition, Conductor and composer Tomas Golka has appeared with major symphony orchestras across the globe, including those of Seattle, Fort Worth, Buffalo, Jalisco, Mexico, Bogota, Colombia, Warsaw, Poland, Baden Baden in Germany, and many others. He's worked with some of the world's top soloists, including Susan Graham, Elisa Weilerstein, Gary Hoffman, Enon Barneton, and his pianist brother, Adam Golka. As a composer of both film and concert music, He recently scored the short film Shaking Cup in 2019 and was named composer in residence of the 2018 Boulder International Chamber Music Competition. His concert works have been performed by symphony orchestras here in California, as well as El Paso, Williamsport, Boca del Rio, and the Suffolk County Festival Orchestra. Maestro Golka, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Margaret. It's great to be here.
0: You lead what seems to be a wonderful life of travel, when we're not in a pandemic, (laughs) and music making. And we're so lucky to have you as music director of one of our local orchestras, the Riverside Philharmonic. But you come from an immigrant background, born in Poland, um, but are here in the States via Mexico. Where did you grow up?
2: Well, I was born in Poland and then in 1980, We moved to Veracruz, Mexico. My father was a trombonist and he got a job there. And uh, so I started music in Veracruz in Mexico and also started school there. And then three years later, we moved to the States and I obviously continued my musical education and English became my third language that I spoke.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. So you do have a musical family. You said your dad is a trombone player and your brother is a pianist. Do you get together and try and collaborate with each other, or are there family jam sessions? How does that work?
2: <laughs> well, a little bit. Um, my mom's a pianist also, and my wife is a violinist. So I would say most frequently these days I perform with, with Anna, my wife. My brother and I have performed together a number of times. It sort of gets a little more difficult between our two schedules. It's we uh, We plan it well ahead of time and we sometimes we do concerts together either with him as a piano soloist and me conducting or uh, we, we did a recital a few years ago, violin and, and piano. Um, my mom and I sometimes for fun play, um, violin, piano stuff also just at home, And uh, my dad doesn't play trombone anymore. He's a piano technician now, so we don't really collaborate, although he does tune uh, instruments. And he has, last time he was in uh, LA visiting us, he tuned our pianos, so.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How
0: convenient. (laughs) Yeah. We'll talk about your work with the Riverside Philharmonic in just a moment, but I'd like to ask a bit about your composition side because not many people know that you're an incredible composer and arranger. Can you talk briefly about your process? Do you write every day? Do you only write commissions or do you still have fun writing what you want?
2: Those are great questions. Um, I I certainly wouldn't say I only write commissions. If I get commissioned for something, obviously I make that my priority. But um, I do have pieces that I write that are just sort of inside me that need to get out, so to speak. Right now I'm working on a piece that I think the working title right now is called Six Feet Apart. <laughs> <laughs> it's can't imagine, Right. Can't imagine where the title comes from. <laughs> I have a possible premiere for it, but uh, it's not as a result of a commission. Um, so, so it's a combination of both. I don't know if I would say I compose every day. I try to be very regular in my work, but because I kind of wear many hats, that work isn't the same thing every day. Some days I'm a conductor, like today, I'm a conductor. I'm, I'm here doing my conductorial duty, speaking on behalf of Riverside Philharmonic and also um, Village Concerts, but some days I'm predominantly a composer, and, and I will focus most of that day on composing something, as actually for the past few days, and then um, when I have violin concerts coming up, that tends to uh, monopolize all, all my time, because there's that little thing called practicing, which as an instrumentalist, we have to do, which is a total bummer, I have to say, (laughs) because uh, as a conductor, there are pieces that I've conducted, you know, five, ten years ago, and I open up a score, kind of review my notes on it. And, you know, within a few days, I'm ready to go. Mm -hmm. That is certainly not the case with a violin piece, no matter how meticulous my fingerings and bowings are in the sheet music, I still have to shed, as we call it, put in the time, and it's like being an athlete, I think, as an instrumentalist, as you know very well, I'm sure, it's very difficult Mm -hmm. to be an instrumentalist.
0: Much higher maintenance. Absolutely. I'd like to take a moment to reintroduce our guest. I'm talking today with Tomasz Golka, music director of the Riverside Philharmonic. Let's talk about what's happening here in the Inland Empire. How long have you been working with the
2: Riverside Phil? This is, I believe, my 12th season. It's hard to it's hard for me to count because I everything if I say oh I recently did this because of the pandemic I realize that was like two years ago, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so <laughs> I confess on public radio that I I haven't done a whole lot <laughs> in the last year and a half. You're
0: not alone. Uh, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, I think it's been a wonderful journey for me with Riverside Philharmonic. Uh, the orchestra has really grown and I think changed for the better. Um, And I'm not saying that just to kind of toot my own horn, I'm saying it because I feel that we've gotten a really, um, we have a wonderful board chairman, Virginia Blumenthal, we have a great board, we have a wonderful executive director, Becky Watley, and um, each of those people really make the organization possible. It's, It's always, it's nice as a conductor to get up on stage and wave your arms and beautiful music comes out and then, you know, I bow for the applause, but truth for me is that you know the instrumentalists work so hard to make that beautiful music and everybody behind the scenes the board the staff the executive director the chairman of the board um they really make it possible for us to even be on that stage so as as uh, nice as it is for me to receive the applause personally it's really on behalf of the entire organization that i i do so and and i'm very happy with the direction that things are taking at the philharmonic
0: Good. It, it really does take a village. Yes. You've got a holiday concert coming up on December 4th and 5th. Can you tell us a bit about what you've programmed for this one?
2: Yes, we're very excited. We are collaborating on this concert with the La Sierra Master Chorale. Uh, we performed with them a few years ago. Again, hard for me to count these days because I can't remember how many seasons ago it was now with... You know, two blank seasons, so to speak, at this point. But we did a wonderful, um, or I should say, they sang wonderfully in this in a Haydn Lord Nelson Mass that we did a few years ago. Mm. So we're really excited to uh, rekindle that relationship with them, and we're doing parts of the Messiah. We're doing a piece called La Peregrinacion, which means the pilgrimage, by Ariel Ramirez. They're actually singing a few a cappella numbers we're going to have about 30 singers joining us. And they are really very well trained. They're students at La Sierra University, and they, there's a wonderful program there. And uh, so that's that's the second half of the concert is basically full of a lot of orchestral choral music. And then the first half uh, is a, I would like to say it's an unusual combination. There are two pieces of mine that we're playing. One is called Ukrainian Christmas Overture, which is a piece that was premiered by Riverside Philharmonic five, six years ago, uh, and it's based on some very famous Ukrainian Christmas carols, only one of which is probably known to everybody, which is the one that's called Carol of the Bells, even though that's not the original title, it's Shchedrik Um The other piece of mine that, that we're doing is called Wilbur the Waltzing Pig, <laughs> which was uh, my take on Uh, Johann Strauss Waltz is a, you know, every year Vienna Philharmonic does these wonderful New Year's concerts and they have these, I don't know if you've ever watched those, but they always Mm -hmm. have this uh, footage that they cut to, which is like people on horses and and all and dancing the the waltz. And I was thinking, well, I want to write something like that, but I would really like to incorporate the most elegant of all the animals. So I thought, what animal is the most elegant? And of course it's a pig. (laughs) So... (laughs) And that and my, my love for Charlotte's Web kind of created Wil, Wilbur the Waltzing Pig, and it features the contrabassoon, which really sounds like a pig snorting
1: mm-hmm. in
2: the way that I wrote it. And um, so th- that's that's part of the program. I think it's going to be fun for the adult audiences, and we're also... The Sunday performance is a children's concert, so we're really kind of... Uh, I think the kids will really love uh, hearing something like that and sing an unusual instrument like the contrabassoon in front of the orchestra, which is... It was always one of my favorite instruments when I was when I was young, and then we're doing some of the Nutcracker. We're doing Parade of the Wooden Soldiers, an excerpt from Babes in Toyland, some Leroy Anderson. Kind of a, a fairly typical menu for a holiday concert. Also a Robert Wendell's Hanukkah Overture, and of course the audience will eventually be put to work. And we'll have to sing along at the end. We, we have a Christmas carol sing-along at the end of each of our holiday concerts. So if you plan on coming to this, don't think you're just going to sit there and do nothing. You actually <laughs> will be put to work at the end to sing along uh, uh, with the uh, Riverside Philharmonic. But we do have the words of all the carols in the program, so worry not. You don't have to memorize anything. You'll, I promise you'll have fun. <laughs>
0: that sounds like a blast. There's something... So wonderful about choir and orchestra, and especially a sing along for the holidays. It really gets people in the spirit. That, that'll be a blast. I think so. I think so. That'll be so fun. Um, and if you ever want to, you know, have mixed media cartoons with pigs and and contrapassoons and everything else, that yeah, you could you could go rogue and do that. <laughs> um, we've seen Riverside go through a beautiful renaissance over the last decade and a half and it feels like your little orchestra, the Riverside Philharmonic, has been a steady force, kind of smack in the middle of this. Would you mind sharing with us some of your plans for the future with the Riverside Phil?
2: I think one of the things we're really trying to focus on right now is building collaborations with uh, various community groups. Um, This season, our concert in May is a collaboration with the Judaic Sacred Music Foundation, and we're gonna be premiering a piece by uh, los angeles composer steve rothstein it's a 40-minute piece called symphony uh, days of awe mm. based on uh, jewish music so th- we're really excited about that collaboration steve rothstein is currently our composer in residence we're also uh playing uh, a piece of his for two violins on some educational programs so um that's been a very interesting and fruitful collaboration. I'm really hoping that next season we can have a collaboration with uh, some Latin American or Latino, I should say, community groups. Um, Certainly for myself because I grew up in Mexico, but I, I know that especially in Southern California, Latino culture is a very important and integral part of the identity of what it means to be Californian. Absolutely. So I th- I'm really looking forward to collaborating with, with some of those groups. I've already gotten to know a lot of the, the, the key players and some of those important organizations in Riverside. And I look forward to us being able to continue those kinds of collaborations.
0: That's wonderful. I'm talking today with Tomas Golka, conductor and composer and music director of the Riverside Philharmonic. This is KVCR, where you learn something new every day, and you are clearly a lifelong learner. Can I ask what you're learning right now, whether that's a foreign language, a musical instrument, some kind of new technology? What are you learning these days?
2: That's a wonderful question. (laughs) Um, In the past few years, and certainly the, the pandemic has, for some strange reason, gotten me a little more into this. I've been learning a lot about cars, old cars. I like old cars, especially from the 50s, 60s, 70s. It's something that I wasn't really that into as a child, but when I was fascinated by some old car, there was a special place in my mind or my heart for those, and I always thought, oh, someday I want to learn more about that. And I think for me it kind of ties into I'm a history nut, and I really like... Uh, being able to connect, whether it's a musical piece or a certain car to a certain time period, and I feel it's, it's kind of, it's very instructive to sort of see the the ingenuity and the and the engineering milestones that have been accomplished throughout the 20th century, especially. And for me. Um, with my daily meditations that i i do every day i like many people i strive to live in the present but i confess that there is comfort in the past mm-hmm. because what's familiar to us so so looking back at uh, you know a time period like the 50s 60s 70s um for various reasons and obviously none of those times were perfect each of those decades was very flawed in its own way for certain groups of people more than more than others but coming from my European background, you know, I have these photographs of my grandfather and my great grandfather with these beautiful old cars, and and it's there's something that connects me to those ancestors of mine through those cars, as strange as that may be to say. And just kind of that's what I've spent time learning. In addition to, of course, music as a lifelong quest. I mean, as Rachmaninoff said. Music is enough for a lifetime, but a lifetime is not enough for music. <laughs> and I definitely agree with that. I mean, whether it's my own compositions or whether it's it's a studying music that I'm going to be conducting, there's no end to it. I mean, I feel like eventually I accept the fact that this is as far as I can get with this for now. And the Felix Mendelssohn quote comes to mind, which is, I think he said, a work of art is never finished, only abandoned. <laughs> <laughs> and i think I think that there's a lot of truth and it and and because music is such a lifelong learning process, it's just about finding the acceptance to let go my inadequacies. <laughs> That's the only way that I can eventually put forth a piece of music that I wrote or get up on stage and conduct it because I feel that one can never know it well enough or one can never create a composition that's perfect and, and all those composers that in the late 19th century could were were m- metaphorically speaking paralyzed and almost unable to write something like Brahms who was had such a difficult time creating a symphony because he was lit- living in the shadow of Beethoven I get that I mean you, you know it, it's so difficult to to have the courage to be an artist and say this is me when there have been and are so many other great people out there mm-hmm. So.
0: Knowing when to walk away. Yeah. Like said, yeah. There's so much to unpack in what you just said, but um, I, I what resonated especially with me is this concept of um, reflection during the pandemic. We really all have been through this. Not to get too dramatic, but like a, a collective trauma, and to be able to press pause and think about history, think about our family, our grandparents, and the connections that we do have, and priorities of life, and what things mean to us. And, you know, talking about travel and, and you know, do I want to be on the road all the time? And, and these are good things to think about and just kind of re- reassess and reflect on. So there, there have been some advantages advantages to the pandemic, I guess. You're listening to Musically Speaking on 91.9 KVCR. My name is Margaret Worsley, and I'm chatting today with maestro Tomas Golka. We've got to take a quick break. We'll be right back. to Musically Speaking on 91.9 KVCR. I'm Margaret Worsley, chatting today with maestro Tomas Golka. Um, I'd love to uh, go through just a couple of rapid-fire questions if you're privy.
2: Absolutely. Just
0: in a word or two. Um, the first one is, who inspires you, musician or non?
2: Strangely enough, the people who inspire me the most and to whom I'm most grateful over the last year and a half are comedians. Mm. I've been listening to a lot of Jerry Seinfeld and Jay Leno, especially that they both have shows or they talk about old cars. I find that is a nice thing. But I, I'm very inspired by really great stand-up comedians. How much uh, of an art form that is and trying to create, whittle your ideas down to something very pure and you know, not using you know, cheap tricks to make people laugh, but people like Leno and Seinfeld, I find are just exceptionally inspiring, and they're great technique at that. And then there are musicians who I listen to regularly who inspire me a lot. The first person that comes to mind is the violinist Nathan Milstein. One of my violin teachers studied with him, and so I've been around his playing and his mentality almost my whole life, and it's something that I find inspires me a lot. There's a I like the idea of cultivating the right musical instinct he was a very instinctive player and worked very hard it's not just when people say oh you're so talented i always when somebody says that i i think i don't really know what that means uh, i i really believe that great artists are made not born mm-hmm. i think that that to me is important as far as somebody born not in circumstances where they easily walk the path. It's almost the path is paved for them to walk a certain path. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's necessary. I think, first of all, you can be born into any circumstances and become a great artist. It's all about hard work and cultivating the technique, the imagination, and the kind of personal aesthetics and discipline to, to do that. And people who have that, I admire them a lot because that that is... Not easy to come by that take that's a daily practice that one has to do for not not weeks but decades and mm-hmm. I I've always I've had this theory that the person who who ruined all of that for us is the movie the karate Kid <laughs> <laughs> I know this is it's a uh,
0: montage <laughs> I, I know
2: I know well you know what it is is it always used to be that to learn something great took a really long time not days or weeks or even months but years and most likely decades. And I feel like the karate kid that that I saw when I was little, as much as I liked the movie, the character of Daniel learned how to become a karate master in what seemed like a few weeks. Yeah, And I remember thinking, that's not right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Mr. Miyagi was great for a reason because he worked at it for his whole life. And I feel like Mm. that in the 80s kind of set the tone for a lot of young people beginning with my generation that oh just work really hard for 3 weeks and you too can learn it i'm like no you can't there's you're not going to accomplish anything great in 3 weeks mm-hmm. if you work hard for decades yeah then it'll be something that's really worthwhile and i admire people who do that who have the uh, integrity and the, the gumption and the, and the artistry to do that, whatever their field is. It doesn't, I don't, I'm not just talking about classical musicians. It can be, you know, jazz musicians, hip hop artists, uh, comedians, actors, anything. Mm-hmm.
0: You kind of sound like an alien right now in a world of like <laughs> instant gratification. You're just like, no, you know, patience and discipline and hard work. Like, yeah, these are concepts we don't always connect with these yeah. days. So I agree, that's very, that's admirable. Um, So much for rapid fire, but here we go. I'm sorry. (laughs) Who do you listen to when you're driving?
2: The sound of my 1990 Saab 900 Turbo SPG. The sound of that engine.
0: (laughs) The soft purr, The soft
2: purr, that's exactly. And sometimes it's, um, my wife would say it's less of a soft purr and more of a roar that gives her a headache after a little while. But I, you know, (laughs) it's interesting. I was thinking that this morning driving here and there's something for me, I, I always used to joke about that. I'm going to go do some driving yoga, and and my 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 friends would say, "What does that mean?" And that means when I go and I drive, and I'm really present in this old car that I have, and I listen to the engine, and I'm conscious about how I shift gears. When I find that there's a meditative quality to it, and I like the sound of it, mm-hmm. and and different old cars for me have this. You connect with them while driving, as opposed to a lot of modern cars, and especially you know something with an automatic transmission. You can just put on the radio or get on the phone, and it kind of, you know, point, point and shoot, I guess, would be the kind of approach of many modern cars. And I, I like the older approach, which is, you know, you have to think about things and plan things out and plan your gear changes. And I I, I, don't, I don't listen to a whole lot other than that.
0: <laughs> okay, that was one of my later questions, so I'll skip that one. Um, but that's neat, you really do drive the car. Yes. Um, that's cool. Okay, so for our friends who don't necessarily listen to a whole lot of classical music, but are interested in getting into it, where would be a good place to start?
2: I think that going to live concerts would be a great place to start. I I think Mm -hmm. that a few years ago, I was doing, for the first time, it's a piece I've done many times since, but I was doing a particular piece, Bruckner's Sixth Symphony. And I'm a big Bruckner guy. I love Bruckner. And I had never done that piece. And I I did it for the first time in Concepcion, Chile, where I was principal guest conductor, which is like... You could almost see the penguins in Antarctica from there. It's very far south in Chile. It's, it's wow. about 500 kilometers south from Santiago, which is already far south. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was doing that piece, and my, my mom knew how excited about it I was, and she wanted to fly down and hear it. Oh. And so she, and she did, and she said, what should I do to prepare? I said, well, you know, this is an unusual piece. I, s- I think you should just listen to some recordings. Just It doesn't even matter who's recording. Pick some and listen to it. Mm-hmm. And so she did. She was, I'm going to use air quotes here, she was prepared for it and she really enjoyed it. That's not to say that one has to prepare for something to listen and enjoy a symphony concert. In fact, I don't think you do. But I think that there are many different ways to listen to a concert. I think the the most important thing is you go to the concert. That's rule number one. Just go there and be present and let the musical sounds wash over you like a music bath for mm-hmm. lack of a better term but then like with anything else i think that the wonderful thing and the reason that a lot of people get really into classical music or jazz for that matter and certain areas uh, attract certain people it's because i think that those areas have a lot of depth and the more you get into it the more you learn i could also think of wine being like that mm-hmm. and i think that going back to your question of what's the best way to begin your journey with classical music it kind of reminds me of this one time that i was in oregon and i went to a tour of a winery ken wright winery who's one of the great pinot noir makers Mm -hmm. um, on the west coast and ken wright gave us a tour and it was a whole day of you know this these grapes are on this side of the mountain because the shade comes at this time and we do this kind of watering and the you know just things that i couldn't even tell you
0: the microclimates. The
2: microclimates, <laughs> yeah, for sure. And, but in and so many different details, and, you know, it kind of makes you realize what an art form making wine is. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, after listening to what seemed like, you know, 10,000 different points about what you have to do in order to create this little red liquid, um, he said, but the bottom line is you have to like the way it tastes. And I think that, for me, encapsulates how I think of classical music, is that you can do something like what my mom did. You can prepare, listen to it, read about it, read a biography of a composer, and then come to the concert and you'll have a certain experience. Or you can do nothing and come to the concert and sit down and just listen to it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the beauty of it, is that you don't have to do anything. It's just music is beautiful because it is. And at the same time, you can get a better understanding of why it's beautiful, if you would like, by learning more about it. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that just by showing up, that's the best way to experience music.
0: Thank you. Um, What's your favorite thing to cook?
2: Indian food. Oh, man. Is that good or bad?
0: That's the best. (laughs) Uh, Do you have a favorite dish?
2: You know, um, I want to say chana masala, which is uh, garbanzo beans usually made with potatoes and sort of a tomato, uh, I guess people use the word curry, but that that doesn't, I mean, it's with specific spices. It's very good.
0: Yes. I love chana masala. What about dal? Any dal dishes? All
2: kinds of dal. Dal tarka I love very much. Um, and actually, one of my favorite things is a uh, mulligatani soup, which is also made of dal. It, dal is lentils, and mm-hmm. with uh, turmeric and some other spices that I uh, really like. Especially these days when it's a little cooler, it's nice to have a little bit of uh, mulligatani soup, which I guess became famous on Seinfeld, right? With through the the soup Nazi. <laughs> no soup for you! Come no back soup one year. For you. <laughs> that was the Mullah Gattani.
0: Uh I was going to ask if you were a Jerry Seinfeld fan because of the cars thing, oh, too. Yeah. Comedians and cars getting... That's one of my favorite shows. It's so good. <laughs> Absolutely. Before we say goodbye, can you remind our listeners of how they can find more information about the Riverside Philharmonic's performances?
2: Yes. I would say go to the Riverside Philharmonic website, which is riversidephilharmonic.org. And you can also call our... Ticket Office and get tickets that way. And I very much hope to see you there.
0: I've been talking today with Tomas Golka, conductor, composer, violinist, and music director of the Riverside Philharmonic. Tomas, it has been a pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Margaret.
0: The Riverside Philharmonic Holiday Concert will have three performances, including Saturday, December 4th at 2 p.m. and 7 p.m. at the RCC Coyle School for the Arts Hall, and a children's concert Sunday, December 5th at 2 p.m. at the Cesar Chavez Community Center. Tickets are on sale now at riversidephilharmonic.org. We'll include links when we post this program to our website on kvcrnews.org forward slash musicallyspeaking. I'm Margaret Worsley. I hope you'll join us next month on the fourth Saturday and following Monday for Musically Speaking. Thanks for listening.